Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Hello, I am not Jonah Goldberg. I am Chris Steyerwald. But you knew that already because of my irrationally cheerful uh, introduction. But this is The Remnant. Uh, a product of the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. And Jonah Goldberg is on a much-deserved vacation, so I will be his stand-in. Now, when we think about how data journalism screwed up journalism and politics and how politics uh, and the news business screwed up the way that we understand data, it's important to remember that there are people who can navigate these difficult shoals, who can, can pass through these difficult waters with ease because they have self-reference, a deep understanding of data, a deep understanding of American politics, and humility. So who would I be describing? What person could I be describing? None other than Harry Enten. You see him constantly on CNN where he is providing context and data about how Americans live, work, play, vote, do whatever they do, Uh, formerly a 538, uh, always a New Yorker at his very core, uh, the world's youngest 90-year-old man, Harry Enten, welcome back to The Dispatch Podcast, The Remnant. Shalom, my friend. Shalom. Uh, you know, it's always a pleasure to be with such an esteemed gentleman such as yourself. That is not true, but I will take it. I am- Take I, it. I'm, I will, I will. I, as, I, as I have always tried to do in my career is I will take all of the undeserved gets uh, because you also have to take all of the undeserved uh, don'ts. <laughs> I don't want to start with a gotcha question, and I don't want to practice this kind of ambush journalism, Harry, but I have to ask. Readers have complained about your soda takes. The last time that you were on, you had, and I think of you as maybe the reigning diet soft drink, zero sugar soft drink expert in America, and you recommended the main root cola diet at, was it Union Station or Penn Station? It was Union Station, the, the Kava at Union Station. And you know, a funny thing happened when I went back there recently, um, a few months ago, and I tried it again, and it wasn't nearly as good. And I think I fell folly to something that once occurred to me at the ABC News cafeteria. And that is that the fountain itself, the hoses in the fountain were misappropriated whereby in the ABC News cafeteria one time, you know, I was like, man, this Diet Coke is really good. It's like the best Diet Coke I've ever had. And finally, I figured out what was going on was that they had switched up the regular Coke and the Diet Coke uh, hose. And this, this, is my, this is my phobia around Coke Zero. Coke Zero is such a good product. And when you get a good 
fountain Coke Zero, right? With the correct size ice and you're really living the dream. You think, no, this is just a regular Coke. And of course, if you ask the waiter or waitress, if you say, are you sure? Not only are you now a total loser uh, who is like concerned about drinking one Coke uh, and it's like really fatty, uh, but the, <laughs> not, not only that, but also what are they going to say? Oh, let us go back and uh, check the wires. We will get our team of specialists on it. You know what they're going to say every time? No, it's Coke Zero. You're fine. It's like the regular decaf lie that I watch people talk to waiters. Are you sure that's the decaf? Hold on. Let's, we got to get our boys in the lab on it. No, it checks out. It checks out. They're going to CSI that. And <laughs> I think that the Kava might have been suffering from that same issue. I, I, I still think it's pretty decent, but it wasn't nearly as good as it used to be. So I, 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 I apologize if I misled your listeners. Uh, I will say on the soda front that I found uh, there's a Brooklyn Fair near me. It's a supermarket. Uh, here in New York City, a Brooklyn Fair near me, and they have c constant sales, you know. And so I've been able to get uh, 12 packs of my favorite, my Diet A&W or A&W Zero Sugar Cream Soda, which I used to never be able to get. I've been able to get 12 packs of those for about six bucks a piece, which is an amazingly good deal in New York. And I last last time I went, I uh, literally this past Saturday, I got three 12 packs for six bucks a piece. And we, they have a rule there where if you leave your ID, you can bring the cart with you. So obviously in what New York, I'm a, not, what, what kind of a zombie apocalypse hellscape do you live in? You, I have to leave my driver's license with you that I can take a shopping cart into a grocery store. No, no, that can take the shopping cart home with me. Oh, and so I was able just to drink because otherwise I'm not carrying three cases. And I also, just so we're clear, Chris, I also got a 12 pack of uh, the root beer, zero sugar, yeah, A&W yeah, yeah. to hope. mix it up, you know, to mix it up a little. I think, I think about my 12 packs in the fridge constantly, mostly sparkling water, but I got to tell you coming to you from the Appalachian side of the soda divide, uh, the wonderful now almost universal prevalence of uh, diet Sunkist or Sunkist zero has just really, it's taken me where I want to be. It's got, Sweet taste, but the delicious caffeine that my bad sleep habits crave. Okay, so the Republican Party has some sodas to pick. Uh, the Republican Party has to choose a beverage. And there's a, a fascinating social psychological experiment going on, which is every Republican, including everybody who is not a Trump supporter from Jump Street. And let's call that of the potential electorate 30, 40% of the Republican Party, right? Yeah, depending on the poll, that seems like a very reasonable. Something estimate. like a third or so, maybe more, maybe less. Depending two, on a third to two fifths, yeah. somewhere in that range. Okay, so for everybody but them, they seem to be settling on what the premise of the election is, which is they want to avoid the, the mistakes of 2016 and have a overly divided field and have uh, the uh, 60 to 66% of the electorate that would prefer a candidate other than Trump from uh, staying divided and letting Trump go through. Mitt Romney has expressly now made the argument, has said, I think Donald Trump's the most likely nominee. And he describes a repeat of a scenario, by the way, that he helped contribute to 
uh, in 2016 when he said, vote for anybody but Trump. Who? Eh, I don't know. Maybe it's Kasich. Maybe it's Cruz. However you feel. It depends on the states you live in. I don't want to say. But anyway, talk to us about the social psychology of this. Talk to this about how you see the lay of the land for Republicans trying to sort this out. I mean, I think Republicans might have already sorted it out. Look, we still got 10, you know, about a year, depending on when ultimately New Hampshire decides to go, you know, to jumpstart everybody and make sure it's the first primary in the nation, even on the Democratic side. But we'll say we have roughly a year, probably a little bit less uh, until the first votes are cast or the first people caucus. And you're exactly right. Trump gets about a third to two fifths of the vote. And right now, it seems like Republicans have settled on Ron DeSantis, most of them, as the alternative. Uh, This is the first time since the 1980 Democratic field in which we have two candidates who are polling north of 30 percent this early on. Everyone else is way back. Uh, You know, Nikki Haley, uh, Mike Pence, uh, Ted Cruz, all in single digits, and those are, tend to be the three who will tend to be three, four, and five. They seem to have already made that decision. And it's so interesting, if you look at the polling, right, I think there's this whole idea that Ron DeSantis is, you know, the candidate who has tried to almost out-Trump Trump in certain ways, right? You know, take up these cultural conservative issues, which I separate out from the social conservative issues. Well, hold on. Well, what do you mean? How do you, how do you, how do you divide a cultural issue from a social issue? I I would say, for example, uh, you know, when I think of social conservatism, I may think of uh, abortion, for example, that's an issue versus cultural conservatism. I may think of, I want America to go back to the way it once was this kind of, you know, fine, you know, America of the 1950s, whatever that means to different people. So one, so one is when you think of some issues, you think about specific issues on debates, and then one is more of an attitudinal sort of the sort of the way Trump uh, brought, the, uh, I think, the most underappreciated uh, line of Trump's in terms of his success and how he displayed these shibboleths that you're talking about was we're going to make them say Merry Christmas again. Yes. We're going to make them say who? Who are you going to, are you going to force Starbucks? Is Are you as president going to order a military strike against Starbucks if they don't put the Christmas trees back on the cups? Okay, I think I got your difference. Yeah, I, I think the only other way I might put it is, you know, like George W. Bush, right? Who I think most people would acknowledge as a social conservative, you know, also immigration doesn't necessarily fall neatly into one of those categories. And I think that obviously was a big part of Trump's a 2016 campaign, you've seen DeSantis try and sort of, quote unquote, own the issue when it comes to the migrants that are coming up, um, you know, from uh, the South, whether that be Central South America or the Caribbean. Either way. um, So if you look, though, at DeSantis's support amongst different parts of the Republican electorate, he doesn't really have a large ideological gap between the moderates. Right the somewhat conservatives and the very conservatives. He tends to be fairly consistent across the board. And that is something that we did not see in 2016, whereby the anti-Trump forces were divided between the people who didn't like Trump because he wasn't conservative enough, the people who generally supported Ted Cruz ultimately, and the more well-educated moderates who ultimately supported John Kasich. And you could never find one person of which those two separate ideological groups could sort of surround and sort of codify around. 
versus right now, it seems like they've gotten mostly behind Ron DeSantis. So there's definitely this social psychology whereby, okay, and we and we often see this right sort of in um, elections with third party candidates where it's like they never can seem to get too high because there's this fear that you're going to vote for a loser. So in this particular case, the viability threshold. Exactly. In this case, this viability threshold seems to be DeSantis has reached the viability threshold. We cannot have Trump again. So we're this is going to be the guy who can be able to sort of, you know, bring together two potentially disparate parts of a coalition and actually make it whole. So I, I, I do think we're already seeing that, Chris. Um, if you could go back and show Republican voters in 2016, the January 6th footage, you could show them the end of the Trump presidency. You could show them that part. I assume that the granular distinctions between, <laughs> well, I like Jeb on this, but really I'm more of a Rubio guy when it comes to that. But I do like Cruz on this and the fallacy of choice phenomenon that uh, gripped the Republican Party because they kept saying, we have so many great candidates. And they thought it was true, right? Scott Walker and on and on. Oh, we have so many great candidates. Which one of these good candidates? Among Will it be Carly Fiorina? Blah, 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 blah. And this time, well, my experience suggests that we don't make the same mistakes twice, but the mistakes that we make in the past lead to different mistakes the next time. So I'm looking at Ron DeSantis and I see Nikki Haley. I noted with interest, Nikki Haley goes out on the trail and she says, Ron DeSantis is soft on sex ed. She thinks third grade is too young. Why does Ron DeSantis want to teach third graders about trans issues? I was like, whoa, whoa, hold on. We're getting, we're getting started early. So the pressure on the B team, Pompeo, Pence is like A slash B. He's, he, we, we'll see. Um, just because he has so much name recognition as being the vice president and all of that stuff. But the, the target is on DeSantis, not Trump, right? The target is very much on DeSantis, not Trump. Um, this would be sort of the way I think about it is. In 2000, when uh, George W. Bush emerges as sort of a consensus figure, almost in the way that DeSantis is. Uh, the, the Republican establishment likes George W. Bush, uh, Andover, Yale, Harvard, son of the former president, check, check, check. Okay. He's got, he's got the resume and, and we can trust this guy. But Bush had spent so much time in Texas courting evangelical Christian voters who at that time were the ascendant part of the Republican party. And so Bush, Bush has all of that. So here's John McCain, right? And what, and I can't remember everybody who ran in 2000. I was a, I, I, I was a. a Would much, you like to try and guess some? We can. We well, can we can know. say Gary Bauer. We know Gary, Gary Bauer, Bauer Liddy Dole, Orrin oh, yes. Hatch, yes. Alan Keyes, um, Dan Quayle, Kasich formed an exploratory committee. You magnificent bastard. That is fantastic. I, that is good. Uh, uh, Lamar Alexander ran again. Lamar exclamation point. Correct. Uh, the, with a checkered shirt. A, 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 a Steve Forbes. Oh, was Steve Forbes 2000? Both. Both him and Lamar ran both times. Steve Forbes, the what might've been in 96, what he got to host Saturday night live though. Okay. So McCain was getting the heat, right? So McCain, as he emerges and is going to run, he's getting the, uh, he's trying to capture all this not Bush energy. 
and was got close for a minute, but but didn't get through. I know all of the ways that personally Donald Trump is not like George W. Bush. Uh, I know all the ways that Ron DeSantis is somewhat different than George W. Bush. But why? What I'll put it this way: What is it about Ron DeSantis that could, and I'm not saying will, but could prevent him from getting eaten alive by ducks? Right? What is it that will prevent that will prevent him from eventually having to engage with the Nikki Haley's and engage with the Ted Cruz's or whomever? So I think when I, you know, I think of things, things through numbers. And what I know about the 2000 field in 1999 was, first off, I love the analogy in terms of Bush sort of becoming this consensus guy because he didn't start out that way. He became it over the course of the first half uh, and really the first, for the, ha- the first half of the first half of, uh, of 1999. Do you want to know? And I'll just as an aside, you want to know where it happened? It was in an Iowa voter forum and the moderator was being very snarky and all the guys were sitting in groovy chairs up on the stage and there was an audience and the guy said what philosopher what philosopher most influences you and what he was clearly trying to like just get them to say something crazy or be be dumb and they go through and bush with his little he's got a shoulder scrunch he goes jesus because he changed my heart boom and it was like that's the guy there you go so good. So good. But George Bush basically charted up and was basically, if I recall correctly, in the high 40s in the average of polling by the end of uh, by June, July of 1999. His The second person was actually Liddy Dole, uh, which a lot of people don't remember, which was, you know, Liddy Dole obviously was, you know, a cabinet member. Uh, her husband, obviously, Bob Dole ran in 96, was the nominee. The third time Dole had run, third time's a charm, I guess, just like for Joe Biden. Uh, and, you know, what ended up happening was Dole just couldn't go sort of the distance. And eventually McCain became the one who sort of took her place right with that campaign that was very much focused on New Hampshire. And the media. And the media. But the big difference is just look at where Ron DeSantis is in the polling. DeSantis is pulling about a third of the Republican vote. That is a very rarefied company. And it's especially a rarefied company when you have somebody else who's polling north or around 40% of the Republican vote on average. And I think ultimately what happens is you get back to that social psychology part of the equation is these folks are going to have to make their mind up, which is if it's not Trump, who is it? We don't want to be split. This isn't like, you know, the, the, the way you might say it is, you know, if we run the Republican primary again in 2008 after Bush won a first term in 2000 and then lost re-election in 04. This is a very different situation, right, where the, sort of the memories of the past are sort of coming alive in people's heads. I ultimately think, obviously, like in past years, if you're looking for a surprise, you know, Iowa has tended to elevate, you know, social conservative candidates, whether it be Ted Cruz in 2016, whether it be Rick Santorum in 2012, whether it be Mike Huckabee in 2008 whether it be, although I wouldn't necessarily consider him in the same social conservative sort of sphere, whether it be Bob Dole in 1988 and Pat Robertson in 1988, right? Certainly, certainly Pat Robertson. And, um, you know, it's interesting for the Republicans. You've got me thinking about something, as you always do. So the, the Mike Huckabee of 2008 was, yeah, populist to some degree, right? He was certainly had sure. the, uh, the fair tax and some of that stuff. And he was one of the first 
candidate and being the former governor of Arkansas, talking about opioid addiction. So he he had some of that populist messaging, certainly. But he was running as a, you know, he went to uh, Wichita Bible College. He was running as a uh, heart first uh, evangelical Christian of the old model of the old understanding. If you listen to his daughter, uh, who is now the governor of Arkansas, and listen to her talk and listen to a lot of people in what we thought was the evangelical space, it's really culture war, right? It's really not socialist. Cultural conservative. Yeah, it's yeah. it's really Tucker Carlsonian kind of, you know, uh, you need more sun on your testicles kind of stuff over there. There's a lot more of that stuff going on. I wonder how Iowa response, right? I wonder, because it's a different Iowa and it's a different Republican party, certainly than it was when Ted Cruz won. Uh, it is. And you know that, so I think there are a few things going on there. One is I always remark in my own head that Trump figured out that the way you sort of win with the, you know, what, what failed for Pat, for Pat Buchanan, what failed for Mike Huckabee, what failed for Rick Santorum was Trump sounds a lot like them on a lot of different issues, except you take out the religiosity. And then you're able to connect and you're able to expand the sort of base of that particular group. And you can actually win over some people in New Hampshire, for example. Right. You can win Roman Catholic voters. You can win uh, non-religious voters. You can get those people who are not attached to mainstream Protestantism or evangelical churches. Exactly. And I wonder... I wonder what will happen in Iowa. And the answer is, I don't know. And we haven't had a lot. We've had a lot. We've had some, you know, sort of uh, interest group polling there, uh, stuff that I would like to see verified by some other things. Uh, but we don't know exactly what the Iowa electorate will look like. What we do know is it does seem, interestingly enough, that New Hampshire, which, you know, in all honesty, probably is the reason that Trump became president. Because remember, Trump comes out of Iowa, loses, comes into New Hampshire. The idea, of course, remember, was Marco Rubio had his 3-2-1 strategy. We're going to finish third in Iowa. We're going to finish <laughs> second in New Hampshire. We're going to finish first in South Carolina. I don't know if it was ever an official strategy, but it certainly was a strategy that the press believed. And basically, of course, Rubio ran into a buzzsaw in New, in New Hampshire debate known as Chris Christie. And then Trump easily wins in New Hampshire and away we go. Uh, I think New Hampshire might actually be the harder state from this time around based upon the polling that I see, in part because Trump's coalition has changed. And that's, I think, something we uh, is not nearly discussed enough, Chris, which is that Trump was a candidate whose base was actually non-college-educated moderate voters in 2006. It was a group he did tremendous among. You could see it in New York. You saw it in the Acela primaries, right? And now his base is actually very conservative voters. Yes, it was amazing to me. I think it was a Monmouth poll. I forget who did the poll. But when they broke out types of Republicans by support, the only group that Trump had the most support, that had majority support in, was very Republican or extremely Republican. The, the people who yes. most strongly identified as Republicans, Trump had like 53% of those voters. Exactly. DeSantis tends to do better among independents who lean Republican. 
my, I, I will say, you know, as I was looking over those cross tabs and sort of comparing different cross tabs, I do think that there is movement for a candidate who can appeal to the Kasich wing. I do think that. Well, and, and isn't that, and I, here's, here's my view. There is no getting to the right of Ron DeSantis, right? Nikki Haley's on a fool's errand. You're not going to get to the right of Ron DeSantis because to the right of Ron DeSantis on culture war is Donald Trump, right? And you're, you're not going to jump both of those uh, things. But there's obviously a big lane for, and this, this is where the left-right terminology sort of breaks down a little bit because you can be a conservative who's not a nationalist. You can be a nationalist who's not a conservative. But for conservatives to mod- for both conserv- conservatives and moderates, there's plenty of room outside of DeSantis, right? There's lots of space there. There's lots of voters. You describe them as Kasich voters. We look at Larry Hogan. We look at Chris Sununu. But um, successful governors uh, with a more sort of a humane approach to cultural issues uh, and who are less vitriolic. Uh, and then I look over here. I see Brian Kemp. I see some others who could appeal to conservatives in a way that DeSantis can't. DeSantis has a problem with conservatives because the nationalism jazz uh, and the anti-corporate stuff and the, all of those things are a turnoff to some traditional conservatives. So there's space over there. But the question I think we're wrestling with here is what will be the willingness of those voters yeah, to take a to chance. take a chance on somebody, especially if what they end up doing is blowing up Ron DeSantis and ending up with Trump again. Is Mitt Romney basically saying, eat it. You're going to have Ron DeSantis as your nominee, so shut up. Yeah, I, I, and I think there's, well, we'd rather ra- ride and die with DeSantis than, you know, kick this open. Uh, and I think that that ultimately may be the thing. Look, if you look at polling, as I like to do, you know, historically speaking, we know that less than 5% of the nominee or people who poll less than 10% of the vote, less than 5% of those folks who are in that zero to 10% category, which is everybody but DeSantis. Right. I love the Trump difference at this point. Well, she got a bump. She's up to seven. Well, I don't know. Five to five to seven. I don't know. Anyway, go ahead. Let, let less than 5% of those folks become the nominee versus if you're somebody who's between 20 and 35% of the vote, 40% of those folks become the nominee. And that's a huge difference. And it climbs ever higher. You know, if you get in the Trump category, about 75% of those folks become the nominee. So what are the chances? So we, we have a perverse incentive structure. Uh, let's take somebody like Ted Cruz, who there is no appetite for Ted Cruz's candidacy, maybe even with Ted Cruz. But he's raised all this money. He has all these supporters. You have staff. Do you know the analogy that I like to make about candidates like this? Uh, the Tom Selleck phenomenon. Tom Selleck had a hit show with Magnum PI for eight seasons and, uh, great chest hair, uh, the best in the business. You could hit a, you could hit a seven iron off of that chest hair and leave him unscathed. Uh, but the problem was he couldn't do the movies that he was getting offered because he didn't want to break up the show and have Higgins, TC, Rick, ice pick, uh, and everybody else lose their gigs because it, it was a wonderful show that was, they could go do in Hawaii, Larry Minetti. I, I own Larry Minetti's book, Aloha Magnum. It has also Italian recipes in it, uh, which you may enjoy, uh, La Cucina, but 
the problem that some of these folks have is when you start exploring a run for president and you start raising a little money and in an era of super PACs and billionaires, right? Where it's like, well, I don't know. We're here. Like how, if you're Mike Pence, how do you say, actually, I'm not going to run? Because then what you have to do is say, because I think Ron DeSantis is the guy that's uh, emotionally hard to do, but it's also hard to tell the people around you who want you to run that you should do it. And also you are the former freaking vice president of the United States. Or if you're Ted Cruz, you were the runner up the last time, or everybody has a reason why they'd be better at this than Ron DeSantis, 45 years, 44 years old and, uh, the go- and, and the governor of Florida. I would say a few things. One, the voters may make up their mind for them. Right. Uh, two, you know, I'm always interested. V- VPs as nominees as eventually, you know, winning the primary to be, be the presidential nominee of their party kind of have an interesting history. There's no doubt that it gives you a leg up, but there's also no doubt that there are plenty of VPs who fumbled and flumbled their way. Right. So, you know, Biden, yes, he became the nominee eventually. in 2020. Eventually he, that wasn't in 2016. Cheney didn't even bother running. Um, Gore was an easy in, the easiest of all time. Uh, but Bush, Bush, H. W. Bush, that was a pretty. But yeah, but Gore, Gore won all fifty states. He knocked everybody out. Um, he was polling about fifty percent at this point. Um, but Quayle, Quayle didn't run in ninety six, and then basically got laughed out in two thousand. So, and remember also Mondale, even though he did become the nominee, actually really go all the way against uh, Gary Hart. So it's not always so easy. And so, but I do think ultimately we don't give the voters enough credit, whether that be on, you know, issues in general elections, whether it be in primaries, voters aren't stupid. They're going to look at the same numbers we're looking at. They're going to get a pretty good idea. And at this particular point, Mike Pence um, has, if you look at the polling sort of limited support and I think has a fairly low ceiling because of how Republican voters interpret what occurred at the end of the Trump presidency. Yes. Uh, for good or for ill. Yes. Um, the other part, you know, it's, it's Pence's Pence's challenge is interesting because he was so doggedly loyal to Donald Trump for five years, right? He was, you know, through the campaign, through everything, the broad-shouldered leadership of Donald Trump. And in fact, Pence's job was to go uh, be an apologist often for Trump, right? To go to the normal world and say, well, it looks like what he's doing is insane or bad, but here's why it's actually really good. So he had to do that for all that time. Then, of course, it had no value to Trump, right? All of, all of Mike Pence, bye, see you later. You are, you are not useful to me anymore, so I'll throw you away and the people will come and try to hang you. So Pence... I, I think the the path for Pence is one in which socially conservative voters, not culture warrior voters, correct? That socially conservative voters say, "We got it. We we need our man. We need we need a, we need a man that we can trust." Now, the other thing that I wonder this cycle: character as an issue. Character as an issue. Um, it, the the biggest problem that Donald Trump had was not policy because he didn't, he had fungible policies, person of low character, right? He will do or say whatever he wants to do or say at any given moment and lie or whatever he wants to do to get where he's going. Um, 
his initial attacks on DeSantis, the groomer, uh, showing pictures of DeSantis uh, with girls at the high school where he used to teach, suggesting that he was up to no good uh, and that kind of stuff. Do you think that Republicans, having been burned by Trump, will they return to the kind of party that once had pause over George W. Bush's uh, misspent youth? Every action, blah, 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 an equal and opposite reaction, right? George W. Bush was successful in 2000 for many reasons, but one large part was because of who was the man who preceded him in the White House. And Joe Biden is person is right now the person in the White House. And yeah, you know, you try and hook up things with Hunter Biden and blah, blah, blah. But the complaints about Joe Biden largely do not rest with his character. No. And that is the issue, which is, yeah, I, you know, look, we know the polling always said that many of Trump's own loyal supporters didn't like that he was on Twitter until, you know, 3 a.m. and doing this stuff. And they didn't they never liked. I think hush money to porn stars was problematic. Right. I, I there was never I, I think there was this, this great moment in the 2016 sort of primary after, you know, um, Iowa, New Hampshire. South Carolina, Nevada, there was this debate. I, I don't know exactly. It might have been wherever it was. It was in February. And Marco Rubio comes up and he is just getting into the gutter with Donald Trump during oh, I was, the. Pro I was there. I was there. It was a, it was a spectacle. Uh, did not did not see Rubio as the genitalia uh, discussing candidate. But there we were. So I put up my hands um, and, and Trump could say, believe me, there's no problem. There's no problem. No problem, it's all good. <laughs> but that did not work for Marco Rubio. It simply didn't. And part of the reason I think it didn't work was because a lot of us thought that Trump was going places because of his bombastic attitude, when in reality, I think you could almost argue he was going places in spite of his bombastic attitude. Or, or that the bombastic attitude was if you accept Donald Trump as a performer or entertainer, right? If you look, if you, uh, Molly Ball, uh, the great Molly Ball was one of the first people to write it in the primaries. And I remember the moment, it was, a, it was a moment of realization, which was these people are having fun, right? The people who go to Trump's rallies are having fun. They play the hits. Uh, it feels exciting. There's, there's, I mean, it's not uh, fun if you're me, and like veal in the back of the auditorium with people uh, uh, yelling about the lying press. That's not a treat, but for the attendees, the attendees, absolutely, it's a lot of fun. I mean, that's why they tailgate. You, uh, there were no Jeb tailgates. Um, and by the way, just as one aside here, the what a thing that has become clearer and clearer to me over time. Jeb Bush and his terrible candidacy and the the awful strategic approach of we're just going to raise a quadrillion dollars and float here over the ether. What was the name of his super PAC? Oh God. I, you know, it was so funny. I was just thinking about this. I could look it up what it was, it, but, but it was, it was one of those awful, you know, America rising kind of whatever, whatever things. And we're going to wait right to rise, right to rise. We got, we're going to just raise a billion dollars and then we'll come in and destroy everyone with money. And we're going to wipe out the field. 
just allowed resentments against Jeb Bush to build inside the Republican electorate who was not excited about a third Bush as their nominee and gave Donald Trump somebody to punch at. So to bring it back to DeSantis, DeSantis right now is enjoying the benefits of candidacy. He won COVID, right? So which, which Republican had the best COVID? Ron DeSantis, because he became the foil, the national, as Democrats singled him out, and he, and he singled himself out in fighting these fights over COVID. And then he followed it up with the Disney stuff and, and uh, leaning in on trans issues. So Ron DeSantis has had all of this, but he hasn't had to engage as a candidate. What does history tell us and what does your instinct tell us about what is the right time for DeSantis to jump? He's, he's now said- Earlier than later. What does that mean? So, okay, so let's take a look. There are two things. One, I don't want to forget on this particular thing. So I was coding last week uh, when every single major candidate entered the race and uh, since 72. And I was- I love you, Harry Anton. I, I was thinking to myself, you know, I, I coded forming an exploratory committee as entering the race because it's, that, and what was so interesting when you bring up Bush's super PAC is I was like, what the hell is this? How do I code this? Because it's not an exploratory committee, right? It is, but it's sort of, you know, but whatever. Either way, uh, what I have found is that the median date in non-incumbent primaries was uh, March 16th, I believe, of the year before. I also found that of the 17 non-incumbent races, 10 of the eventual, 10 of the 17 were before the median candidate in the given year, two were the median candidate, and only five were after the median candidate. And the latest of those was Ronald Reagan in the 80 cycle, uh, when he essentially formed a, you know, a candidacy statement or whatever with the FEC. But, he, but, but now, wait a minute. Ronald Reagan had a significant advantage. He was running the whole time, right? And when he, from the moment that he, that he released his delegates to Ford in 76, Correct. his 1980 campaign was underway and there was, it was unmistakable. Who was the second latest candidate to announce versus the median? I is, believe this is right. Is this among Republicans or among all? Oh, oh, oh. All. Second latest to be the nominee. Who is the second latest to be the nominee? And Me, who, yeah, right. Who announced like the second latest compared to the median going candidate back to that what, year. Going back to what year? You don't have to go back that far. Oh, really? Hillary Clinton? No. Who? It's Joe Biden. Oh, really? Joe Biden. Remember, he did not really announce until, I believe it was like the April 22nd. Remember, Liz Warren was in that race on December 31st. Right. And you had Kamala Harris who was in. You had Bernie Sanders who was in in February. He was, he was about 45 days or so, uh, if I recall correctly, uh, after the median. And that's another candidate who had a lot of advantages that were already built in people who universal name recognition had run for president before or been vice president, although in, in the case of Biden, it was both. Um, and that gives you an idea. You're better off announcing earlier than later because it helps you build name recognition. It helps you build a campaign apparatus. But is DeSantis like Biden and Reagan, or is he like the, the rest of them? Does he have is is he in a structurally different place than these other people? That's a good question. That I think is, I think it's a good question. But even in the case of Reagan, right, it was only, it was less than 90 days. So I'm, 
white knights generally don't work. I mean, we've had a few white knights in our day and age, whether it be Fred Thompson in 2008, whether it be um, Rick Perry in 2012. Uh, those did not work out. I am not a believer. Michael Bloomberg. Michael Bloom, great. Another perfect example. People um, have spoken. The people, right. It, uh, was it, uh, no, I, I think it was American Samoa that he Was talked. it the Samoans? I believe it was the Samoans. The Guamanians, they've always back a winner. The Samoans, yeah. you know, they, 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 you never know. they blow with the breeze. You never know. Uh, I, I, I feel like there have been many comparisons to Scott Walker with Ron DeSantis. I hate that comparison. Tell me why. Because when you look at the polls, it's just like looking at vanilla ice cream and looking at concrete. I mean, they're just, there's, what, what, what's the comparison? The comparison is, is that one of them, one's got up to 15% of the national polls and the other one's at 35. Well, here, here's the comparison outside of polling. I certainly take your point on polling. The governors. Well, no, the governor who was, Scott Walker's moment was in 2012 when he got recalled and, and decisively won his recall. And the Republican Party's national attention fixated on Wisconsin because of the protests and the unions, and he's busting government worker unions. And while that was happening, the, I hate the term establishment because it doesn't, it, it carries connotations that are not present anymore, but we'll say the Republican political class, right? The political professionals of the Republican party uh, start coming out for him, right? They start lining up like, okay, this is the guy we're going to do it. We're going to get in for this guy. Bush people start showing up and there's like, okay, what, whatever. And then when he starts running, it's a fizzle. And what Trump seems to be saying, and I'm not saying this is true, but what Trump and a lot of people are saying about DeSantis is he's low charisma when he actually has to go run, that he won't be good. He's prickly. He doesn't care about people in that way. And it's hard for him to do that stuff. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, we don't know until people run, right? I mean, John Glenn was great resume going into 84 and then fizzled. That, and that, that's the part of this that has me so weirded out which is we have a coalesced field uh, into these two pools, right? So we basically have 40, 40, and then 20% of the vote divided up a bunch of, of whatever. And uh, not to call you all whatever, but you know what I mean. Um, that if DeSantis cannot live up to the hype, it's going to be a problem, right? It's going to be, it's, it's gonna be, it's going to be a serious problem and all that stuff, which brings me to my final question on the Republicans, which is how should Republicans be thinking about debates? If you could design for the Republican Party, and this is the week that they're, 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 they're continuing to take proposals from networks and from news outlets, what, if, if, if you were a Republican, if you were, if you were uh, Rona Romney McDaniel, who, how would you be looking at this? Okay, so I think that there are a few things to keep in mind. Number one, you have to ask the question, how large will the field actually get? And if you look in history, again, there are very limited examples where you have two candidates who poll 30% plus and two candidates whose total share of the vote totals in the 70s. And in all of those examples, the fields were very small. They were five or less. Now, I'm not saying this is like Obama Clinton. No, this is like um, Clinton Sanders, where that, you know, 70, you know, Gore Bradley, 
Uh, and the only other one was really uh, Kennedy and Reagan Carter Bush. in eighty. Reagan Bush, no, Reagan Bush didn't get to, Reagan was polling in the high 30s, if I recall correctly, and Bush was not up to that level. Um, so very small, very small fields. That doesn't mean, you know, you know that's going to be the case this time around, but I don't think we're going to be ending up with more than 10. I could be wrong. I wouldn't be surprised if we end up seven, eight, nine. Wouldn't be shocked by a six or seven. Um, and if you can fit all of them on one debate stage, I think that sort of now all of a sudden you've got something. The I think the other question is, what is the purpose of the debates? Secretly, you know, what are you actually trying to accomplish in them? Uh, the big thing that Donald Trump had over the field in uh, 2016 was his name recognition was very high and he dominated the press, dominated it to the extent that I don't know if we've seen, we never really saw before and I we haven't really seen since. Uh, and so the more debates will allow potentially for other candidates to get their recognition up. But at the same time, it could divide the anti-Trump vote. So I think it's ultimately, what are you actually trying to do with these debates? And I think that will sort of lead you on the course of how many you should have, what should be the format of them, so on and so forth. Donald Trump, people may forget, for the, for the first half of the debate, calendar. Donald Trump laid back, right? He wasn't a good, he wasn't particularly good debater in 2015, 2016. And he mostly was able to let, uh, Chris Christie take out, uh, uh, before he took out Rubio, took out uh, Ron, uh, Rand Paul, uh, and, and, and let these, uh, let these blowups happen among these factions, uh, and let that go on before the, uh, as he said, I keep moving towards the set. He said to Jeb Bush, I keep getting closer to the center of the stage and you keep moving out that way. Uh, by the time Trump was at center stage, he already had his wrecking ball, like that third, uh, to the, as you said, uh, third to two fifths of the Republican party that was in his corner, which was enough for him. Okay. I have seen so many polls that talk about how unhappy Democrats are with Joe Biden. It is the like you could Washington Post very uh, on the eve on the eve of the on the eve of the State of the Union. Only thirty one percent of Democrats want Joe Biden to be their nominee, and this is reflective of poll after poll after poll about low satisfaction among Democrats. My very rough read is that Joe Biden should have like ninety percent approval among Democrats, eighty five ninety percent of approval among Democrats but he struggles to hit those numbers in his job approval numbers. He's not getting the kind of the, the kind of swack that he should be getting among Democrats. Uh, and there is this dissatisfaction. Um, is this uh, people letting the perfect get in the way of the good? Is this that Democrats have not yet come to terms with that there isn't anybody else? Is this a mirage? What is this? I think it's more of a mirage than anything else. Uh, look, uh, if Joe Biden decides that he wants to run for another term. And every indication that we have is that he has, in fact, pretty much made that decision. Um, although, you know, not official. So we'll see. I've seen more shocking things. At, the, at this point, if Joe Biden were to make an early declaration that he was not running for president, it would be a big story. It would be a huge story. Uh, so I think we got to separate two things out. One is Joe Biden's approval rating 
And then two, what percentage of Democrats say they want him to be the nominee? And then within that second one, uh, sort of how we'd stack up against the rest of the field, hypotheticals, blah, blah, blah. First off is that his approval rating among Democrats, depending on the poll you look at, is actually about 80 to 85. He's basically, in my mind, where he's supposed to be. And historically speaking, incumbents do not receive challengers unless their approval rating within their own party is in the low 70s or below. George H.W. Bush on the eve of the New Hampshire primary in 1992 is, I believe, at 72%. Uh, Carter and Ford were in the 60s uh, in 1976 and 80, respectively. And then Harry Truman and Lyndon Baines Johnson were, if my memory is correct, in the 50s or below uh, on the eve of the New Hampshire primary in 52 and 68. And ultimately, both of them decided, you know what, we're not going to give it another go. That's not where Biden is. Uh, but interestingly enough, you bring up those polls that say you want Joe Biden to be the nominee, yes or no. Would you be satisfied if he were the nominee? And he's well south of 50% among Democrats. Uh, and those are two very, two very different things. If you say to all of our listeners, okay, guys, we're, we're Diet Cokes for everybody. Diet Cokes for everybody. And we're like, oh, Diet Coke. I don't know. Some people are thrilled, but people say, oh, Diet Coke kind of tastes like battery acid. Is there anything else? You know, is there anything else I, going I on out there? Uh, and I say, wait a minute, guys. Why is Harry making everybody get Diet Cokes? Who wants something else? We want something else. Yeah. 75% of we want something else. Now, as long as I don't have to say what the something else is, right? Because as soon as I say, well, it's Diet Sunkiss, people are like, gross, you hillbilly. That's disgusting. Why are you drinking that? So there, the, I, I'd like to remind people frequently that California is two things, the biggest democratic state and also the state that pays the least attention to this kind of stuff, right? So I think there are a lot of democratic voters across the country that have not dialed in on this question in a serious way. It's certainly in the way that, that the Republicans being the party out of power, that they have not, right? The de Democrats have not engaged in this way, number one. And number two, Donald Trump, I think there is a direct correlation between the viability of Joe Biden as a Democratic nominee and the credible threat of the existence of Donald Trump. And Biden needs Trump, right? Uh, if, if Donald Trump uh, today uh, floated away on a Chinese balloon and was never heard from again, that Joe Biden, Democrats would feel a lot less obliged uh, because something I think people tend to forget, even the people who are participating, speaking of social psychology. Parties choose their nominee with the other party's eventual nominee in mind, right? If you're, when, when the Republicans were debating in 2016, they were debating who would be facing Hillary Clinton. They were thinking about Hillary Clinton the whole time, and it shaped who they were going to pick and how they were going to pick. A Democratic party that was thinking about Ron DeSantis would function very differently than a Democratic Party that is credibly afraid of Donald Trump. They are actually credibly afraid of Donald Trump, and that helps Biden. I think it does. I mean, you know, Donald Trump has run for president two times before. He has won two primaries and one general election. He has lost one general election. So he's three for four. The only guy that's beaten him is Joe Biden. Uh, more than that, 
you know, I've looked at some of these polls that, you know, place Biden up against other Democrats. He leads all those polls by 20 plus points, although he is south of 50 percent. But, you know, it's like the candidates they put up against him or his vice president are his secretary of transportation. Folks who are not going to run. Bernie Sanders is not going to run against Joe Biden. Therefore, by default, he is the nominee. I'm sorry to say to Marianne Williamson, your chances of winning are not very high. But, but, but her crystal power, you don't know. When the, when the chakras get aligned, my friend, things happen. Now, if I'm Elizabeth Warren, though, so New Hampshire's going to have its primary because it's New Hampshire. And the Democrats can choose to sanction or punish or whatever. But the primary is going to take place. Now, it will be irresistible to someone other than Marianne Williamson, right, to say, I don't know, maybe I'd like to do this. Now, it may just be nominal. It may just be notional. It may be like, uh, what's his name, who ran against Trump? Uh, he was he uh, was a former Massachusetts governor who uh, then ran as a libertarian. Bill Weld. Yes. Uh, that, you know, th that. Yes, there could be somebody like that, right? That uh, uh, the former governor of Montana or somebody shows up to say, I'm going to take on Joe Biden. And then I want to talk about the metric system, uh, Link Chafee, uh, that, that's, that there could be some of that. But somebody's going to do it, right? Somebody's going to do it. Uh, maybe. Uh, by the way, I, I have to drop it in the fact that I would not have thought when I was following the 2006 Rhode Island Republican senatorial primary. Laffy uh, Chafee, baby. Link Chafee. And you know that his opponent in that primary was a mayor in Rhode Island, uh, Steve Laffey, who is actually running. He is running on the Republican side this year. I, I get his PR emails occasionally. Steve Laffey, the author of the book Primary Mistake. Uh, which is a, which was, I traced as the er moment, uh, in the breakdown of the Republican party. That is like, he didn't start it, but that was the first biggest crack when that popped wide open in Rhode Island and Rhode Island Republicans were like, yeah, well, I don't know why we need the popular, uh, I don't know why we need this Lincoln Chafee guy, uh, son of John Chafee. Let's, let's explore this. And, uh, that. Link Chafee had to disavow Bush. I wrote in his father. All of that jazz was really uh, a preview of what would happen to the Republicans in the Senate over the over the following fifteen years. Ah, now you you know it's you're bringing me back to my uh, elementary and high school days. Uh, this is that you you were a wild kid, Harry. You were a wild you woo! were a wild kid li living it up, getting a New York system wiener uh, uh, in uh, Providence and living the good life. Uh, Okay, so I, I, yeah, just just to quickly say, I, I I would just add, I don't think if you're a Democrat, you want to end up where Julian Castro ended up, which was or Bill De Blasio, which was you got on such the bad side of Joe Biden that you basically ended any chance you had of joining the administration, any chance you had going forward in politics. Remember the difference between a Buddha judge now. Buddha judge did much better in the primary than Castro did, um, but the fact was that Biden was more than happy to bring Buttigieg into his administration versus Castro, you don't hear anything from except for the occasional barb on Twitter. And that, I think, is an ultimate fear of any Democrat who wants to take on Biden is that he's very likely going to be the nominee and you challenge him in any form of fashion at your own peril. I'm watching you, Liz Warren. I'm watching you, Liz Warren. I, will, that, I, I think you're right. I agree with you in the main, but it will depend on 
there's a lot of as as they would say, there's a lot of football to be played uh, between now and October, and and we will see. And last thing before I let you go, uh, will so the Republicans have the best Senate map I think I've ever seen coming up for 2024. It's a pretty good one. It's really like it's it it's uh, better than the map they had in 14. It's like real real good. The and, math is also easier. Yeah, the math is a lot easier. Uh, they don't need much. Joe Manchin has 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 a hard decision to make, uh, and so does Tester and Sherrod Brown. Sherrod Brown. They've got retirements. It's it is it is very tough. Um, do you think that Republicans have learned the lessons requisite from their debacleous uh, 2022 primary nominating process to uh, think anew and act anew? Well, the answer is, I'll give you the cheap answer, which is, I don't know, but I will give you a historical note, which is in 2012, this same map came up, not, you know, obviously the states are sort of, you know, different and, you know, the presidential vote, some of these states are much more red than they were or blue in a few cases. But the 2012 map comes up. I thought Republicans were in pretty decent shape coming into it. Missouri, Indiana. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, And this came after 2010, where they nominated some candidates that I thought were subpar relative to the other nominees they could have made. Delaware, for example, I think most uh, predominant in my mind, where they decided to nominate instead of Mike Castle, Christine O'Donnell. Oh, yes. Uh, and 2012 comes up, and what do they do? They nominate Todd Aiken. Sure they nominate Richard Murdoch. And you just go, oh, my God, they did it again. Now, I don't know, you know, based on that year, how that year kind of shook out. It might not have mattered. It probably didn't matter in the end. I think it mattered in Missouri, and I think it's it mattered a, in Indiana. Correct. But it mattered in those states. And if you're asking me, as we sit here, you know, more months. than a year and a half <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> from the election, that Republicans will have learned the lesson of 2022, I cannot say that. Uh, they could definitely do it again. But remember, they Republicans need to pick up, assuming that Joe Biden wins, which incumbents win more than not, but far from a guarantee. They need to pick up a net gain of two seats, two of West Virginia and Montana, states that Biden lost by 15 plus points or about 40 points in the case of West Virginia, plus Ohio, a state he lost. Plus Michigan with an open seat. Correct. There are plenty of opportunities, but then you look at who Michigan chooses as the head of their state party and you go, oh boy, I don't know. I really don't know. Still high on their own supply. Okay, now the very, very last question. What is the best place to eat in New York City right now? What is your favorite? What Give us some inside insight. As you, the best eating skinny person I know, what is, give us, give us a little insider tip on where to chow down in New York City. I think it depends what you want. Um, you know, I have to be honest. I, I tend to be a, a very relaxed individual. And I like a quiet place where folks who 
are the age that I act. And I like, <laughs> and I like uh, an Italian joint that I haven't been to in a while, Canaletto on East 60th between 2nd and 3rd, right near Bloomingdale's, which I just think has a very nice, good appetizer selection, good um, entree selection, and has wonderful desserts ranging from tartufo to a nice mixed berries with freshly whipped cream. And I tend to enjoy that very much. And I don't feel, you know, like I've become, you know, sort of gluttonous when I eat. You there. don't have a Gandolfini energy as you're wrapping up. That's correct. But there are other places that I certainly go to and enjoy, uh, whether it be Shangli, a Chinese restaurant on the Upper West Side. Oh, I've uh, been to Shangli. That is very good. That is very good. Yes. Um, and, you know, I even though I haven't been there nearly as much recently, my surrogate father, uh, Noam, uh, who owns the Comedy Cellar, has a nice little joint above his, uh, above the Comedy Cellar, uh, the Olive Tree Cafe, which I just enjoy. I think the atmosphere is good. And you know what? The food is actually pretty gosh darn good, too. I do enjoy a good piece of salmon from there from time to time. I don't think you should be shy about doing a New York dining guide. A dining guide and diet soda guide could be the, could be the next part uh, of the Enton Media Empire. Harry Enton, uh, anybody who doesn't follow you, anybody who does go on Twitter who doesn't follow you, anybody who's not enjoying your work currently on CNN, is there any other place that they should be getting you, that they should be receiving your wisdom? Not really. I think you've covered it. Twitter, uh, very occasionally, although I'm not as active as before, I make sure I write at least one column a week for the website. And on the air, you can catch me either on the morning program or you can catch me in the evening. Uh, you'll usually see me with uh, my dear friend, Mr. Anderson Cooper or uh, Aaron Burnett in the seven o'clock hour. And occasionally you can even catch me on a panel in the 10 o'clock, but those tend to be the places that you'll see me most often. It's always good. And you're always good to join us and very generous. And thank you so much for your time, my friend. Have a great day. You know, I wish this were on a Friday, then I could say Shabbat Shalom, but I'm going to say good Shabbos anyway. <laughs> well, and, and, and a happy, uh, we're recording this on Shrove Tuesday on Mardi Gras. So I, I say a, a blessed good Friday, or a blessed Ash Wednesday to you, sir. Well, that's it. Gentle listeners, we appreciate you. And we uh, hope that we get to see a tanned, rested and ready Jonah Goldberg back in our midst uh, very soon. Uh, but until then, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is my podcast. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.